we need to review. Starting on the first page. Genesis chapter 1. In the first chapter of the Bible, we learn that there is one and only one God. And this mysterious, infinite, eternal, uncreated being is enormously powerful and very loving. Personal. Relational. He shows the most intimate concern for his creation, for humans, for our lives. He gives humans full access to himself. That's the first two chapters of the Bible. It's magical. It's amazing. It's, it's almost too good to be true. And then beginning in chapter 3, things get bad. And suddenly in chapter 3, we start the sickening story of evil. And from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, you have a triple play of evil. Three stories of evil in a row. The evil of Adam and Eve rebelling against the creator. Followed by the evil of rank, kind of wickedness. And and the evil of arrogance. The story of Noah, the story of Babel. So that's Genesis 3 through 11. It's a triple play of evil. Then you get to Genesis 12. And Genesis 12, like I've said many times, this is the the small hinge that the entire Bible turns on. So we start out being told God made this amazing God who's so powerful and loving, makes everything good. Then it gets corrupted by evil. And then the hinge, Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God sets his plan to deal with evil into motion. And how is God going to deal with evil? Now, this is an important thing to know about the Bible. The Bible never ever identifies the origins of evil. The Bible is not the story of where evil came from. In fact, it never tells us. It's a mystery. What was the serpent? Where where did he come from? How did that get started? It doesn't ever identify that. But what the Bible does do, it tells the story of how God is dealing with evil. It's about how God deals with evil. Now, why does he not tell us where it came from? Maybe because we're just too dumb to understand. That's my hunch. It's that it's beyond us. Now, how does God choose to deal with the problem of evil? All the bad stuff that's ever happened to you, ever happened to anybody in this world. How does he choose to deal with it? It's a very curious thing. And this is, this is not what I would have imagined. This wouldn't have come into my mind. But the way God chooses to deal with evil is he picks one man. And he says, Tag, I'm going to give you all of my blessings. I'm going to... I'm going to enter into a relationship with you that extends to your children and their children. And through you, I'm going to solve this problem. Now, now think about what I just said. I left out a whole lot, right? Well, how's he going to solve it through this guy? We don't know. But he says, through you, I'm going to solve it. And I'm going to solve it by being related to you, by loving you, by you knowing me, and by you walking in my ways. And then, what happens? Then as we read through the life of that one person, that's Abraham. 
and his children, Isaac, Jacob. A curious thing is happening. If you pull back from Genesis chapter 12 and following, what stands out the most? Well, what stands out the most to me is that God has become a teacher. He wasn't teaching in Genesis 1 through 11. But suddenly starting in Genesis 12, he's a teacher. And he's, and he's taken on himself the burden to educate Abraham and his family in how to walk with God. Now, this is interesting. The way God sets about solving the problem of evil is that God enters into a relationship of education with one man and his family. And he begins to teach them things. He begins to teach them how to walk with the grain of the universe. How to live life the way the creator made humans to live life. How to walk in the ways of God. You know, every Sunday, right? We kneel and pray. Forgive me so that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways. And that's what we see with Abraham. He's teaching him, no, you can't have a lot of wives. No, no, no. One wife, be faithful to her. Be a good father. Treat people with hospitality. This is God educating Abraham. Now, we need to know this because when we get to our chapter this morning, Genesis chapter 31, when we get to this moment, In the life of Abraham's grandson, right? Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. This moment in the life of Jacob. We have to keep in mind who Jacob is. He's the grandson of Abraham. God had said to Abraham, I'm going to love you and bless you and your children. I'll bless them. Why? Because they're your children. And this is the way I'm going to work in the world. And I'm going to teach you and your children how to walk with me. How to... Get this whole thing back on track so that humans are living the way they're supposed to be living. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 31 with that framework, we see three lessons God teaches the family of Abraham that we too are supposed to learn. About God and his ways in this world. Because us learning these lessons, this is part of God's work in the world. You see, God's work in the world is that his people would learn to walk in his ways. We are partners with God in dealing with the problem of evil. So when we look at Genesis chapter 31, a strange chapter, three fundamental things come up. They've come up already as we preach through the life of Abraham and Isaac. But they keep coming up over and over and over because they're fundamental. Now, what are these three things? The first thing we see in Genesis 31 about the way God made this world to work and the way this one and only loving, powerful creator is working in the world to heal the world is this. Grace. Grace. A fundamental part of God's work in the world is grace. In a specific form. It's this. If you have been blessed by God. If your sins have been forgiven. I grew up Baptist. We call this getting saved. 
If that's true of you, and if you have children, they automatically get that blessing too. That's grace. That's the opposite of works, right? Oh, I was born to the right people, so I get it, right? Do do Kyle's children have to earn their inheritance? Legally, he dies, no will. Doesn't it just pass to them, Aaron? Isn't that the law of the land? No? Uh, The fam, okay, that's right. I was thinking they both died in a car wreck at the same time. Okay. In fact, if our government stopped that from happening, a lot of you in this room would say that's unjust. That's not fair. That's not right. Where do you think human society learned inheritance from? The ways of God in this world. In fact, have you been following along with us in the life of Jacob? Is he a good guy? Is he righteous? Do you see him acting in faith? No. But look, when he goes to tell his wives, we got to get out of Dodge. Because your dad, who's mean when he likes me, no longer likes me. And that's bad. Remember? Oh, you're, my, you're, you're part of my family. How can I help you, right? 20 years of hard labor. Well, suddenly he no longer likes Jacob. And not only him, but his children. And this is a life and death situation. And God says to Jacob, you got to run now. So Jacob has to do what? He has to go and talk to his wives. And he has to convince them to leave. And go on a long journey. Which is treacherous and dangerous. How does he convince them to leave? Well, look at verse 5. Genesis chapter 31, verse 5. I see that your father does not regard me with favor. A more literal translation. Does not look toward me. Does not put his face toward me as the literal His face is not with me, but the God of my father is with me. Verse 5. Jacob, Laban is against Jacob, but God is with Jacob. Verse 6, 6 through 7. You know that I served your father with all my strength, that your father cheated me and changed my wages ten times. This is symbolic for a whole lot. But God did not permit him to harm me. Your father tried to harm me. But God stopped him from harming me. Verses 8 through 9. If your father said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Laban tried to cheat Jacob through breeding trickiness. But God still overruled all those tricks and kept pushing everything toward Jacob. What we see here is that Jacob says to his wives, Your dad is not with me, but God is with me. God's presence. Your dad does not protect me. He tries to harm me, but God protects me. Your father does not provide me with anything I need, but God provides provision, presence, and protection. His argument to his wives is God has done this for me. Did Jacob deserve any of that from God? 
We've been reading the story of Jacob. Is this the life of a man of faith? No. He's a trickster. He's mean. He's selfish. Why was God so good to Jacob? God helps those who help themselves. Well, except in Jacob's case. Why was God so good to Jacob? It's not because Jacob was righteous. And it's not because Jacob had faith. The reason is because God made a promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham. And God not only promised Abraham, I'll bless you and your children. If anybody messes with you, I'll harm them and protect you. In fact, a few weeks ago, C.J. preached on a moment in the life of Jacob, chapter 28, where God says to Jacob, because I made this promise to your father, it counts, your grandfather, it counts for you too. Genesis chapter 28, verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and, the fa- and God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. He goes on and on. And he basically repeats the promise God made to Abraham. Why? For only one reason. Jacob's in the family. So what does Jacob say when he wakes up from this dream where God said, you get all of these promises? My translation It's not literal, it's loose. Holy cow! He does this dumb thing. Oh, well, God must be here. Like, we've been reading it. No, the whole earth is the Lord's. And Jacob's like, oh, I'll make a little monument here. Like, God, maybe this is a magical portal into the presence of God. Jacob says, holy cow, I get this? Me? Deceiver me? Just cheated my dad and my brother? And I get all of these promises. You know, think about it. Jacob cheated his dad, cheated his brother, and God says, I'm going to give you huge gifts. (laughs) Do, do Do you see what is happening here? He's not earning this stuff. So the first thing we see in Jacob's life is, why is he getting so, so many blessings, so much protection? Why does he have the presence of God in his life? He doesn't deserve it. It's because he's in the family. Now, I did not grow up knowing this. I experienced it, but in my Christian tradition, I was taught that was the opposite. It's funny. Christianity entered my family on my father's side at my grandfather, my dad's dad, Papa Biggie. Don't laugh. When he was a boy, he was so big, he got the nickname Biggie. Can you imagine? <laughs> and his wife, Mama Rosie. That, that's where Christianity entered on my dad's side. On my mom's side, it entered one generation before that, in my great-grandparents. You know what? I have never known a day I didn't know Jesus Christ. I didn't have a conversion experience. And when I was 17 years old, I remember saying to my youth minister, how do I know if I'm a Christian or not? I don't have like one of these moments like where I was, um, like my life before Jesus, (laughs) like before I was in the womb. Like really, I've always believed. I've read my Bible every day of my life since I learned how to read. I do not ever remember not reading the Bible and praying. I've struggled with doubts here and there. But because I was seeing all these people in my youth group who were having these conversions, 
I, I suddenly had this crisis of faith. Like, I can't tell a story where that happened to me. So am I a Christian? So my youth minister, who loved Jesus and had a deep impact on my life, made a mistake. He told me, well, pray the sinner's prayer now. And let's just make sure you are a Christian. You know what he should have said? He should have said the same thing that you would say to Micah Wickline. If Micah came to you and said, I just don't know if I'm a Wickline. What would you say? You are a Wickline. Because you were born to Leanne and Phil. But I don't remember being born to them. Well, that's not the way it works. The only people who remember it are those who were adopted as older children and adults. Those are the only people who remember coming into the family. So unless you're an adult conversion, that kind of, that's, that's not the logic that applies. Now, I, was, I grew up being taught that every person has to have their own conversion. And they have to know it. And they have to remember it. And they even may, might, might need to say the day and the time. And it wrecks children of the faithful. What I would say is that what, what should have been said to me in that moment Aubrey, when your grandparents came into the faith, God made promises to them that extended for generations. Your salvation is dependent on God keeping his word. You need to reflect on that. The sun will stop shining tomorrow before God breaks his promise. You can trust that you're saved because God is faithful. Because God has always worked this way. So children, if your parents are in the faith, be encouraged. Don't ever doubt. Doubt that you belong to your family before you doubt you belong to God and his family. That is the way God worked in Jacob's life. When God wanted to assure Jacob he was in the covenant, he didn't say, remember this happened to you. He said, Jacob, I made a promise to your grandfather. And you get it too. Parents, are you telling the story of when the faith came in your family? Are you teaching your children why it's easier for them to believe than it is to disbelieve? For some of them, it's because they've inherited this. Parents, be thankful to God. Be encouraged and reject the ridiculous notion that our children are neutral in relation to God until they reach some mythical age of accountability. We must teach our children what God has done for them in Christ's death and resurrection and what he applies to them by the means of grace in the life of the church. Our job is not to convert our children. It's to teach them to persevere in the faith that they've inherited. Children, thank God for this. Now, don't misunderstand me. This does not mean the Christian faith, God's work in this world. To say that children inherit the the gifts of God's grace from their parents, this does not mean that we can be passive about them. It doesn't at all mean that inheriting the covenant relationship lets you off the hook for responding in obedience and faith yourself. In fact, it's right here in the life of Jacob. Look at Genesis 31 verse 3. The Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers. Now that's a command. Sounds very much like what other commands somebody in this family has received. When Abraham was in the same place 
geographically. God said to him, go to a land I'll tell you. Return to the land of your fathers, a command, and your kindred. And if you do this, I will be with you. Now pay close attention to what I'm saying. What we have is a command followed by a promise. Right? Go, get up, leave, go, and I promise I will be with you. Here's the weird thing. 20 years earlier, the passage preached on several weeks ago, God already promised Jacob his presence in the dream. Genesis chapter 28 verse 15. And there the presence of God was given to Jacob based on the fact that he was a child of Abraham. No command, just gift. What we're seeing is a basic pattern in the Bible. Comes up over and over and over. Promise, Genesis 25, uh, Genesis 28, 15, I'll be with you. Followed by command, Genesis 31, go, that leads to a renewed promise. This is the second aspect of how God is at work in our world. The first is through grace, particularly in the way his covenant is passed on. But here's the second issue. Grace responded to in obedience leads to more grace. Grace responded to in obedience leads to more grace. So remember, what we're looking at is the lesson God is teaching Jacob about his way of working in the world. About how to live, how to live like humans were made to live. How to live with the grain of the universe. And the first lesson is that once the saving work of God enters into a family, it sticks. And it gets passed down, just like your resources get passed down. But at the same time, and this is our second lesson, when God comes to us in grace, he comes to us where we are with all of our weaknesses and failures and character flaws and wickedness. He starts with us right there, grace. But he doesn't give us the option of staying there. This is a basic pattern in the Bible. Promise, grace, gift, followed by command that leads to even more grace. What is the grace given to Jacob up to chapter 31? You're in the covenant because you were born into it. And with that comes provision, protection, presence, land, seed, blessing. What other grace does Jacob get? Did you hear our reading from Hebrews 12? He gets the grace of discipline. God was disciplining Jacob. Right? He had deceived people, so God disciplined him. He chastised him. He, he spanked him. Right? By how? By letting him land in the web and the net of a trickster. The deceiver encounters the arch deceiver. And he, and he experiences what he has done to others. That's discipline. Right? That's called natural consequences. Now, how does Jacob respond to God's grace? So God, grace, 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 grace. And then God says, command. Get up and go. 
The same command God has done to other people at other times. How does Jacob respond to the command following the grace? How does he respond in Genesis 31? He obeys. He gets up and he moves. What about you? How are the covenant blessings of God manifested in your life right now? I really want you to think about it. And to help you think about it, I'll tell you how the covenant blessings of God have been manifested in my life. It's easy to think in these three P's that I've already done. Provision, protection, and presence. Thank you. Janelle and I, uh, we, in our family, we lived in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, I was ravaged by a church. And I had a breakdown. And I resigned. We had no debt. But after a while of not having a job, people get debt. I had left the Baptist because I was, knew I was becoming Anglican. I had no job, no prospects of a job. And... I was deeply wounded. And my family was hurting. And God gave us you. He brought us here. I'm not joking. He brought us to a group of people. We were praying about moving back toward our home. Houston. And we visited up here. And we had to decide. Were we going to, plan, were we going to be a part of planting a church here in Harrisonburg. Or, part, or plant a church in Houston. Our home. And. But when we visited here, we found a group of people that was God's gift to us. Uh, About a year or two after being here, Janelle said, Aubrey, this is so amazing. We fit here so well. I love this place and these people so much. If you die, me and the kids, we are not moving back to Houston. We're staying. These are our people. This is our place. Now, this is how, this was God's just provision. He gave us a home. When we moved here, we said we'd love to live on Franklin Street, but there's no way we can afford it. We had no assets, no bank account. And God gave us, in a miraculous way, we got a home on the street we wanted. Protection. I I could tell you a thousand ways, but just two funny ones. I'm the world's worst driver. I'm not joking. Before I was um, like 18 or 19, I'd had 13 wrecks. I just stopped counting at that point. I'm not joking. I'm a terrible driver. I cannot tell you how many times I have almost died. One time I was driving on the off-ramp of a freeway going like 55 miles an hour. And I didn't notice it was an intersection. And when I looked up, there were cars on both sides of me skidding and like fishtailing. Because they had the green light. And I just went right through... One time I woke up while I was driving home from university asleep and driving through a ditch off a a highway. I can't tell you how many times I've almost died. Now, we've learned from this. Janelle drives. I don't. (laughs) God has protected me. um, Another way God has protected me was through my dating life. (laughs) 
Um, I had a girlfriend from kindergarten until I got married. Now, different girls. Um, I was willing to marry all of them. And God protected me. Really, really did. By giving me Janelle. So much of a blessing. Another way God has blessed me just by being in the covenant. I don't deserve this stuff. Is I was never the smartest guy in the room. I was not in the gifted and talented classes. But God gave me favor in my education. I went to the local junior college. Then I went to a small regional Baptist college. I wanted to get a PhD. And so God let me get a PhD. And I'm telling you, when you're in junior high and high school... You know where you are in the intellectual pecking order. And I'm telling you, I was not up there. But God just decided to let me get a great education. That was just God. Because I'm his child. And he gives good gifts. How is God blessing you? Not because you deserve it. How's he protecting you and providing for you and present to you? Now, God has called me to obedience several, lots of times in small ways, but several big moments in my life. He's called me to obedience. The first big time he called me to serious obedience was when I was a teenager and I was dating somebody that I desperately wanted to date for years. And he told me not to date her. And she was the girl of my dreams. And he told me to stop dating her. I had a set of best friends. And one day I woke up and God was making it very clear to me that they were very, very immoral. And I was joining them in it. And he called me to walk away from that friendship. And I did. Three times I was accepted into a PhD program at a school I really wanted to go to. My alma mater, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, then Oxford, then Cambridge. And all three times, God told me no. I graduated from the University of Liverpool. I obeyed him. Now, God doesn't always do this. He doesn't always put his finger on the thing you love until until you have to give it up. But sometimes he does. How is God at work in your life? How is he blessing you? And what is he calling you into obedience over? Obey him. It will lead to even more grace. That's the pattern. Grace followed by command that leads to renewed promises and more grace. What about you? God takes us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. And he intervenes in our life in these moments and calls us to things. So we started out quite encouraging. God's blessings are generous. God's way of dealing with evil is through grace, is through entering into a family and then growing his kingdom through that family. In grace, I'm saved. That was the first lesson. But the second lesson is that doesn't mean I can just passively receive it. God works in this world through obedience. I have to embrace that grace. And I embrace it through obedience. 
Are you responding in obedience to the grace that is God's gift in your life? Are you walking in the obedience of faith? Now the final of our three lessons about God and his ways in this world. It's this. It's hope. Grace, obedience, and hope. The Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil and this involves a power far greater than our lies and our adulteries and violence and greed and pride. Look, the evil God is dealing with is much worse than your sin. It is much deeper. It is much more powerful than you can ever imagine. Your sins, from the little ones to the big ones, are just outbreakings of a far deeper Far more serious, far more fundamental evil that has entered this world. Our passage today, Genesis 31, it's the concluding episode in Jacob's 20-year enslavement to Laban. When we first met Jacob, he was a clever, deceitful, hard-hearted young man. And we saw him trick his brother and his father. And then one day his lies catch up to him and his brother's in such a murderous rage. What does he have to do? He has to run for his life. And where does he run? Right into the arms of an arch deceiver. He, He jumps out of the frying pan, an instant death, into the fire of a long, slow, humiliating death. He goes from a guy who's dumb but strong and raging into the hands of a man who is clever and deceitful and destructive. He ran into the webs and snares of the arch deceiver. But what does God do for Jacob? He rescues Jacob from this enemy. God delivers Jacob from an enemy that is smarter than him, more tricky than him, more deceitful than him. And that's not the first time in the Bible that God takes somebody who runs somewhere for help and ends up in the hands of a trickster. Abraham ran to Egypt for help, getting away from the famine. God rescues Abraham from Pharaoh. God rescues Abraham from Abimelech. God rescues all of Israel when they're enslaved in Egypt. This is a pattern over and over in the Bible. God and his covenant people get trapped by a trickster and then God rescues them. When we see God's mighty deliverance of Jacob, we see that God's work in this world is not only about grace and obedience, it's about victory over the evil one. Now stay with me. John chapter 12 verse 31. Listen to this. This is Jesus. Right, Not long before he goes to the cross. Now comes the judgment of this world. Now this world's ruler is going to be thrown out when I have been lifted up from the earth. The arch deceiver is going to be defeated. This deeper, darker reality that fills Laban and Pharaoh and Abimelech and Rome and Caesar and all of the tricksters in our life. That deeper authority God became flesh himself to do battle with and to deliver us from. You see, as you read the Bible over and over, we're told that there is a dimension to evil that cannot be explained by Freud as being rooted in sex or Marx as being rooted in money or Nietzsche as being rooted in power. There's a deeper, darker force. And there's more to evil than meets the eye. And this dark, deep force, this is the enemy. 
This is the evil that is ruining your life. This is what's driving your depression and your addictions and your sins and the sins done against you. There's something behind all of that. It's called the Satan. And sometimes Satan rears his head up and works his way out through your mind and your mental health and your psychological health and sometimes through your physical health and sometimes through structures and governments and institutions and sometimes in, Israel, in individuals. But in Jesus Christ, in the Gospels, what is he doing most fundamentally? He's picking a fight with the Satan, with evil. Not the manifestations of it, but the thing behind all of it. That's what he says in John 12. When I'm lifted up, that thing will be dealt with. Jesus confronted our master deceiver, our real enemy. And when we look at the cross-shattered Christ, what are we looking at? Why is Jesus on the cross? Because he's dealing with evil. He's drawing it upon himself. And from John, John chapter 19, verse 30, he says, it is finished. This is not a death gurgle. It is finished. It's not I'm done for. It's not I am finished. It's a cry of victory. It's the victor on the field planting the flag saying the battle has been won. That moment when he cries that out, that is the climax of the long story of God dealing with evil in the Bible. So many of us are in the hands of a Laban right now. Cancer. Mental health issues. Addictions. Families that ravage us. Lift up your heads. Don't give in. There will be a victory. You will be delivered from the arch deceiver. What we see in Jacob's life should encourage all of us to know that God has the power to do it this side of kingdom come. And he may, he may not. But it's still a foreshadowing of what he will do ultimately and finally. When he makes all things new. And we are delivered. We get our own exodus. From the evil one and his clutches. Lift up your heads one day. In preliminary ways now. But one day. The evil one will be finally destroyed and every tear will be wiped from their eyes. And all that is Satan has taken from you. Did you hear our gospel reading? Jesus is binding the strong man. Why is he binding him? So that he can plunder his house. What's in his house? All the stuff he took from you. What did God do with Laban? He took all of his wealth and gave it to Jacob. The powers of this world are defeated. And one day, the plundering will commence. And all that has been stolen from you will be returned to you by the victor. This is how God works in our world. Through grace. Through obedience. And through the hope of victory.
Let's pray.